Welcome to the OA Lighter Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker uh, feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Eric. My name is Eric, and I'm a compulsive overeater. You know, I email my sponsor every morning, and I email him the food I had yesterday, my plan for food today, what happened yesterday, and what my plan is for today. And I must share, I emailed him this morning and I said, I don't know if I can speak 30 to 40 minutes. But I prepared a dance number in case I run short. (laughs) So if you see the jazz hands, you know the number's coming. Uh, You know, uh, I love whenever we read Chapter 5 how it works because I've often thought, and I love in the big book how every story is started, you know, has that title like he thought this or this, this, and miracle and so forth. And in my own story, you know, if it had to be called anything, it was he thought he was constitutionally incapable of being honest with himself. Because that's my story. And so we'll go to the beginning. Uh, I was also thinking today that ironically, my earliest memories are of food. I actually have, I don't know how many people do, but I'm one of those people that I know the day I gained consciousness in this world. I know the day that I started to be a person. I was about two years old. We were moving into a house, and my very vivid memory was playing outside, running into the kitchen where there was a bag of dried apricots. I grab a dried apricot. You know, when you're two, you could spend time eating just one. You know, run back out and play, and, and that was my memory. And uh, years later, that was followed up by the memory uh, of going for donuts every Saturday. Um, So I've always been a compulsive overeater, just for as long as I can remember. Um, My parents both worked. My mom uh, was a second-generation teacher. And uh, my last day of kindergarten, she drove to her new teaching job. uh, And my first day of first grade, she was back at work. And... By the time I was in second grade, I was a latchkey child and uh, always been something of a loner, something of a shy person. You know, half of this disease is my disease of isolation. I'd rather, you know, be quietly in front of a TV eating food. And that is precisely the age when I discovered that interesting little trick. Uh, I may have been the only seven or eight year old that was, you know, into Mike Douglas. Because I would get home from school and I would have from 3.30 to 5 all by myself before my parents got home. And uh, I discovered cinnamon toast and Mike Douglas. And I ate, you know, just tons and tons of cinnamon toast. And, you know, the addicts that we are, my God, I knew like four or five different ways to make cinnamon toast. (laughs) And all of them were horrible. You know, uh, I remember one time... uh, my father had, was working for a, like a five-and-dime store that was very big in the Midwest at one time, and he used to bring home stuff from the warehouse. And I remember one night he brought home one of these, I guess it was just like a, you know, I want to say it was five pounds, but in truth it was probably one of these two-pound chocolate bars that was, you know, about 12 inches by four inches. And he was in shock that night. I was maybe nine or ten that I couldn't stop going into the kitchen and getting some of that. You know, and he, you know, it was it was the first time he ever said, son, what's wrong with you? You know, why, why can't you just stop that? 
you know, which I then proceeded to go to another room and still go into the kitchen and eat, you know. That's the power of my disease at such a young age. Uh, I was one of the few people, you know, we just passed what I would have considered a high holiday, Halloween. <laughs> and I was this kid, you know, of my memories... I got a costume of a, like a skeleton when I was a kid, and I didn't care what the hell I wore. I just wanted to get out there and get the candy, you know. I was probably the only kid knocking on doors at 10 o'clock. Hey, hey, trick or treat, God damn it, you know. So, the last one to come in, and, you know, and the first one done with their candy. Uh, I have a brother who's two years older than me and apparently does not have a single addictive gene in his body. You know, and so here I was a sugar addict, and I mean my Halloween candy, and you know, when it comes to our compulsive overeating, we're so fastidious. Why well, have that sorted? You know, you started with the, the candy you really didn't like, you know, get that out of the way first, and then you slowly work your way to the candies of, of value. And my brother would eat a couple of pieces and throw his bag in the closet. And, you know, I would finish my candy, you know, when I got a good haul, it would last maybe two days, three days, you know. Uh, and then I would climb into his, you know, and take his candy. And thank God that was not ever really a big thing to him, you know, because he was not that sort of sugar addict. I was a darn sugar addict. Uh, so in second grade, I doubled my weight and became an obese child. Uh, and I stayed that way. Uh, until I was about 11 years old. I was growing up at that time in Oklahoma, and when, we were, uh, when I was 10, we moved to Chicago. Also, the other great miracle in my life, which is the back end of this story, uh, we adopted uh, a sister when I was 10. And I was so excited to have someone younger than me. I was the youngest child at that point that I just adored her. I just adored her. And as a latchkey child, you know, my mom, I once again very quickly went back to work and I became the person responsible for taking care of her, changing her diapers, taking her to the sitter. I remember I got a paper route at one point uh, and I was the one who was responsible for getting those papers delivered as quickly as possible so I could come back and pick her up. You know, everyone else came home later than me and I had to pick her up. But I also, you know, bound to her very much. You know, she meant an awful lot to me. And it's interesting to think <clears throat> that the one period of remission in my disease was during those years, from about 11 until about uh, uh, actually 19, my disease went in remission to an extent. What I had done was as I was entering my growth spurt at 11, I sort of made a commitment to myself that I just would not gain any more weight. You know, I weighed about 125 pounds at that time, and that carried me well from, you know, 11, 15, 16 <laughs> before the needle had to go up. And as long as the needle was below 125, I ate it to fit my disease. And when it got over it, I slowed it down. Uh, one last little funny thing about my childhood. I was such a rabid uh, sugar addict that when my mom made cookies, they would have to hide them in the house, you know. And it also helped me develop my psychic powers because I could walk into the kitchen and just look around, you know, kind of like Creskin, and then look at my mom, and then I knew they were right, you know, right up in that cabinet, and bam. So, you know, the nature of my disease is just crazy. And I was also probably the only kid still trick-or-treating at 15, you know, but which is not true. I was more like 12. But anyways, uh, uh, so my disease went into a little bit of remission. Uh, and then when I got into high school, uh, it started going bad again. Um, my parents, uh, 
were divorcing for much of my, my adolescent years. From about 10 to 18, they were you know, on the edge of divorcing. And by the time I was 18, they finally did it. And my last days of high school, I can remember driving around in a car eating pecan pies. You know, that again, it's the nature of my disease. Uh, so I'll jump forward a little bit. That uh, My compulsive overeating carried on. I got married when I was 21. Fantastic woman. Later discovered she was an alcoholic. I simply could not keep up with her on the drinking side. And so while she was drinking, I was eating. And we were both living wonderfully in our co-diseases. Uh, she was a chef and loved to cook. And <laughs> she would make these cakes and I would just eat them right then and there. And uh, she finally said one night, you know, so help me God, I'm going to divide the cake in half and you can eat your half as quickly as you want, you know. And for some reason or another, I was able to abide by that boundary. Uh, she divorced me uh, about 10 years after we got married because I was just, as I said, very sickly in my disease. And that's when I first came into program. In 1992, I came into program. Uh, I was lost. I was just, I had no idea where to go. And I got real abstinent in this program. And it was really great. At that time, my top weight entering in at that point was about 250. I got abstinent. I had this wonderful sponsor. It was just this scrawny little woman from New Jersey, and the accent was just what I needed. You know, you know why are you doing that? You know, uh, and I got abstinent, and everything went really well. I worked through the steps, and everything was fine. But as I know today, my problem back then was I never paid attention to the honesty. And, you know, I've since learned that that honesty is so absolutely crucial. So I got abstinent, and I was fine. And it started with a few little white lies I told myself, because I can't really lie to you until I'm willing to lie to me. And after I got good at lying to me, I started lying to my sponsor, and then I didn't call her, and then I drifted away. And, you know, and we can lose our abstinence so fast. At that time, I don't even know when it was lost, but I just woke up one morning and realized... I was back on the disease. Uh, and then I proceeded to struggle for about the next six or eight years. Uh, I gained a lot of weight back. I gained about 20 pounds. I figured I needed a desperate solution. And so uh, I went to uh, O.A. Howe at the time and got re-abstinent again and worked the steps in that O.A. Howe program. And again, got abstinent, lost my weight. Everything was fine. But once again, I didn't pay attention to that being honest with myself. Uh, and uh, I remember that abstinence breaking just as simply as walking into a 7-Eleven one day and seeing a box of fiddle faddle and going, you know, I haven't had that in a long time. <laughs> you know, and that was the end of it, you know, uh, and it was over. Uh, and I was just lost. I couldn't seem to find a footing. I did finally come back in the program at about 2003 and uh, found a sponsor and was able to stay with him for, for actually two or three years. Uh, he worked me through the steps, but as I came up to my one-year birthday, he said, aren't you about to celebrate one year? And I said, you know, uh, uh, I had, was already beginning to realize that I was lying to him. You know, my favorite thing with my sponsor, he wanted me to call in and say what I ate. And uh, for me, I would call in and say I had some cookies, you know. 
because some is, is pretty much what I had. It was an entire bag, but, you know, a bag is some. So uh, I remember, too, you know, I would eat two medium pizzas and call that in as two slices of pizza, you know, <laughs> two, or, or two pieces of pizza that were just sliced because the pieces were too big to hold in one hand. Uh, and... Uh, you know, and once again, my disease just, just unraveled. And, you know, that was the point in time for me when I hung on to this part in Chapter 5, where it says, uh, uh, this is a simple program. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And so, again, around somewhere, uh, I don't know, 2007, 2008, I came to suddenly realize that that was probably me. I was probably incapable of ever being honest with myself. And so uh, I left the program. And I tried, you know, every number of things. Uh, uh, I meditate a lot, and I can meditate quite well, but it wasn't enough to stop the disease. Uh, I started, uh, you know... Uh, just eating vast quantities again. And I think, in hindsight, I probably have a pretty fast metabolism because, I, by all accounts, I should have been a 100-pounder. I should have gone up to 400 pounds. But I just kept eating and eating and eating and had come to accept the fact that I could never come back to this program. You know, one of the beautiful things about this program is that all we have to do is call ourselves a compulsive overeater and we can come back. But at that point, when I left the program, even as I realized I was just face down in my disease, you know, I had that sort of resentment problem of thinking that I would show up and everyone would say, hey, you know, sorry, man, you know, you're done, you know, we're moving on without you, you know. Uh, so I was afraid to come back, even though I was getting more and more hopeless. Uh, and then uh, about two years ago, the worst possible thing that could have ever happened to me happened to me. Um, I had, uh, for many years, my sister was living in New York City. And we were both poor for a long time, and I had a real hard time seeing her. But then, her last few years she was living in New York City, I uh, flew out to see her several times. And it was really great. And I got to bond with her, and she really admired me. And, you know, she's probably the one person in the world that I could, you know, feel so great that someone was actually looking up to me. Uh, I had been a failure in so many other parts of my life. Uh, and then she had a business, and, uh, you know, in 2007, when the economy tanked, she decided to sell out of her business. She had a little money, and she was going to take a year off and travel. And the trip started with a visit to see me. I was so happy and I was so proud. She came and stayed with me. Uh, now, she is someone who had wrestled with her own demons, but it was kind of painful for her to come and see me, you know, the brother that, that uh, she had a connection to, you know, wallowing in this disease. And, you know, I, uh, I kind of felt a lot of shame about that, that, you know, I couldn't get recovery. And here's someone who admired me, and yet, you know, on the one hand... Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm supposedly expounding this wisdom, and on the other hand, my life is just completely out of control, you know. And whenever I was not near her, I was eating something, you know, and then when I was with her, you know, I was the guy who, you know, had a small piece of cake and a Diet Coke because I knew I'd get what I really wanted on the way home. Uh, so uh, she came and saw me in that, in that light. And then, uh, uh, actually just over two years ago, uh, she was making a cell, uh, a cell phone call in her car and passed through an intersection and she was hit head on. 
and killed uh, pretty much instantly, although the person that she was on the phone with had to hear her draw her last breath. So, and I always like to share that just a little bit, not so much to garner any pity, but to make sure that everyone knows, yes, you know someone who lost someone using their cell phone while the car was moving. Uh, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. Uh, and beside myself, and, and I finally understood what they meant by wailing and beating your chest, I really didn't know uh, what would happen and, and what was going to happen to me. But as I got a little further away, I decided that probably the best thing I could do was honor her death by getting, you know, recovery and getting my life right. And so uh, uh, I promised myself that come January 1st, I was going to start honoring her life by getting, you know, back in program, getting my food right, and so forth and so on. And January 1st came, and I was doing everything right until probably at least 11.30 or 12, you know. But by the time I got home, it was a reset, you know. I had my uh, Domino's dinner, and, you know, everything was going to start the next day. And then January 2nd came, and I failed that day. And the 3rd, and the 4th. And I proceeded to literally start every day as some way to make things right for my sister every single day that year. And I failed every single day. I was just becoming so morally bankrupt. I was not even aware of what was occurring to me. I literally went almost 330 days starting every single day saying that this would be the day I got it right and every day I failed. And as the anniversary of, you know, the first anniversary of her passing came, I became just just almost beside myself. Uh, You know, I started going to movies and crying uncontrollably, you know, and then being so embarrassed because I was crying, you know, uh, that I didn't know what was going on. And uh, I was going to fly back to visit my mother and I got up that morning. I was so excited to go see her. I had my bags packed, I went to the subway, I got on the subway to go to the airport, and I realized I didn't have my driver's license. And I didn't know where it was. Now, I'll pause the story for a minute and say that that particular week, there was a TV company shooting a a TV show in my neighbor's backyard. It was one of those fix-it shows. And they were just awful. They were just awful people. You know, they were parking their cars in my street, you know, coming and sitting on my front lawn. Never once came over to say, you know, say hi and ask permission. They were just driving me crazy. And so now I came home that Thursday and I had been unable to make the trip because I didn't have identification. That You know, damn Guy Bush who makes us go through TSA, you know. I was just absolutely beside myself. And then this TV crew was making my life worse. And the following morning, I got up to drive to the DMV. And as I was driving out, the TV crew had a light stand in my driveway. They were filming on my front yard. And I was so livid, I got out of the car and I ran. And, you know, and I was just like, what the hell are you doing? You know, and the producer, you know, apologized. I tried to contain myself and I said, you know, I'm going to get my license. I'll be back in an hour. You better, you know, just get off my yard. I came back an hour later. They were still on it. And I just raged. I raged against the machine. I just, you know, ran at this guy. And I said, you know, and who the hell is your production company? And I'm calling them, you know. And and, and I went into the house and I called that production company, you know. And then they called him and said, that guy's crazy. You better go shut him down, you know. And he came over to my house and I just lost it. I just could not stop. Yeah at this man just bam bam couldn't couldn't stop and I 
I saw for the first time in my life, I was staring at somebody looking at me trying to make a decision, trying to decide whether to call the loony wagon to protect me from myself or call the police to protect him from me, you know. And I stopped dead in my tracks. And I told the guy, you know, if you'll just go away, leave me alone, I'll go back in the house and I won't bother you anymore. And I went back into the house right then and I just, you know, as I said, I just lost it. It was the singular lowest point in my entire life. Uh, I didn't know what I would do. I knew I was failing so horribly in this disease and I was dishonoring my sister. Everything was going wrong. And in that moment, I was so fortunate in hindsight to have this spiritual experience because I knew my problem. My problem was I was not honest with myself. And I realized that this was the moment that would define me. I'm either going to die from here on out or I'm going to find a way to get honest with myself and another person and I'm going to be okay. And I had that experience and I made that decision to be honest with myself. And I was still just a little crazy. So like anyone else, I called my doctor and I said, I need a pill. I'm going crazy. You know, uh, and he said, you know, Eric, that's really not the way it works. <laughs> you know, you have to make an appointment uh, with, the, you know, the, 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 the mental people and they'll check you out. And so I called them and I said, you know, I'm going crazy. I need a pill. I'm going, you know, someone's going to calm me down. And they said, well, we'll, we'll see you just as quickly as we can. And I said, yeah, what's the next appointment? And it was like nine days later. And I hung up the phone and I went, holy smokes, I've got to make it for nine days. I'll never make it for nine days. And my trip was canceled. I took the rest of the week off and I went to an OA meeting. And I walked in the doors and I saw all those people who had known me from before. And here I was scared that, you know, oh, my God, they're going to say you've come back too many times. And, you know, and the great funny thing is, you know, our, our reality is all about us. But the real reality has nothing to do with us. A lot of them were happy to see me. And I sat through the meeting. One of the other great miracles then was I went to the 100-pounders meeting that Wednesday. And I sat at the meeting behind a guy that I had known in the program for many, many years. Uh, and he shared something that night. And it stuck with me even to this day. He shared, you know, uh, even if you're a newcomer in this room, the next meeting you go to, you have one meeting more than the newcomer. You can turn around and shake their hands. And that just stuck with me. You know, and as I said, I was desperate for something because this was the moment, you know, this was the moment where I had to get honest with myself and someone else. And... I called my boss. I changed my work schedule. I started at 7.30, and up in the valley, there's a 7.30 meeting most every morning uh, somewhere in the valley. And I changed my work schedule to 8 o'clock, and I drove to that meeting, and I just stood at the doorway. And from 7.15 to 7.30, I shook the hand of every single person that came in that doorway. Now, I'm an isolator. That is still to this day the scariest thing in the world I can do. But I stood at the door and I shook the hand. And I just thanked them for being there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I made it through. I also was very lucky in running into a, a group of men up in the valley. And this is the golden time in the program for men. Uh, that Sunday meeting, I was sharing the sort of lunacy you're hearing now. And just, you know, losing it and sharing at the meeting, you know, my God, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to die. This is the end of it. Uh, and all this crazy stuff. And after the meeting, a fellow came up and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to drive over to this restaurant and wait for us. Don't do anything. Wait for us. And this program, you know, is so much about reaching out to others. And those guys, you know, they gave me comfort that day. They did what this program is all about. 
All they wanted was my sincere desire to stop compulsively overeating. They sat there. They heard every blasted little thing I had to share. uh, And they took me in. And I got a sponsor. And I got this program going. Now, that day is sort of interesting. I'm I'm so, for some reason, into dates. Today is uh, November 10th. Or, if you're writing it numerically, 11, 10, 12. And the day I got asked in this program was 10, 12, 11. Uh, I'll never forget that day. And they taught me how to get through this program. They taught me about a concept called sober eating. And that's what I live with today. So, what my sponsor started uh, to have me do, and what I do uh, to this day in the program, is uh, I get up every morning and I go through a routine. Uh, I read a couple of pages, uh, either from the big book or from uh, one of the, uh, you know, for today or something of that sort, and I say my prayers. I say either the third step prayer, now the seventh step prayer, uh, one of the prayers in the program, maybe even the serenity prayer. In my own case, I, I made a prayer even for myself that just goes, God, please, just for today, help me abstain from compulsive overeating uh, or eating for my own sensual pleasure. Instead, help me to use food simply as medicine to repair and sustain my body and to nourish my soul so that I might be in service to at least one other person. And then I go to the meetings where I can and I stand at the door and I shake hands. And it's kind of funny. Uh, now up in the valley, I'm such a, something of a cartoon figure, you know, because they know that there's that guy standing at the door. But, uh, but they're always there, you know, to help me. And, and uh, it's just fascinating, the miracle of this program, if you just reach out and if you just follow directions. Uh, my sponsor has been moving me through the steps. And, you know, as many of us know, it's not easy. I think one of the hardest things to do in this program is realize that one of the messages they say is don't eat no matter what. And, you know, in all my time before, uh, I always figured out some way to eat for some reason or another. And uh, uh, today I don't eat no matter what. I define my abstinence in terms of sober eating. And that is a way for me to be black and white. So I define what foods work for me just in simplistic terms. I don't eat uh, uh, refined sugar or white flour. Uh, I also don't use uh, uh, like Pam-like sprays that are butter flavored that I use as condiments. After I got abstinent in the program, I found myself (laughs) spraying like an entire bottle of butter flavored Pam onto my oatmeal, you know. And so... uh, (laughs) I had to stop that, uh, but I was always feeling good afterwards, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, sober eating is a way that I can approach every meal and know that, uh, uh, that things are okay for me uh, and that I don't have to eat in the gray. And I've been so blessed, you know, I never really even thought in this program uh, <clears throat> that the weight would ever come off again. You know, uh, as I said, the first time I came in program, I was about 250. And when I came in this time, I was also again at 250. And I was just grateful that I could just be honest for a change. And, you know, I didn't care about the weight, but I've been blessed with having the weight come off. And uh, uh, my sponsor in the course of giving me sober eating, you know, I do weigh and measure a lot of my food. Uh, I'm one of those people that has a large salad. You know, I eat a lot of salad uh, and and. Uh, Every meal I have is a meal that I can walk away from and know that it's abstinent. Um, what else was I going to say? I've just recently been able to 
sponsor some people. I've got far enough in the steps, and uh, I've just recently had the chance to sponsor some people. And, you know, that's the final and, and best miracle in my life right now because I'm discovering every day I work with an abstaining, you know, a new abstaining member in this program, I'm reminding of where I was and how important it is never to go back there again. Uh, and so I'm very grateful uh, for all the service I've been able to have in this program. And I just try to live one day at a time. I uh, was able to get my one-year candle um, last month on October 12th. And another interesting thing, and I'll close with this, since I've, I've had to bring up the, the, the issue that brought me in this program with my sister. Today, one day at a time, I'm finally able to do the thing that meant so much to her. Uh, the anniversary of her passing was last week Sunday, and I spoke at a meeting Saturday morning. And I do not know what compelled me, but in the middle of my speaking at this meeting, I said, would everybody in this room do me a favor and just text me tomorrow between 7 and 8 a.m.? I need that help. You know, that was the moment when I lost her. And the interesting thing, I was sharing at that same meeting this morning, that Sunday, which should have been a sad and depressing Sunday, wound up being one of the best days of my life because people in program reached out to me, you know, and it starts with me being so desperate to reach out to you because I know my inclination at this meeting is to be alone. I can be alone in the first row. I can be alone in the back row. I can be alone over in a really good alone place. That's my nature. I want to be that. What goes against my nature is to try and reach out to my fellows. And it was just a blessed miracle. I got texts all day long. And people were telling other people, just text that guy. He's crazy and it'll help him. Yeah. And as I say, it turned out to be one of the most beautiful days in my life. And I know one day at a time when I get up and I work this program and I say my prayers, it helps to set me right for the day. I was sharing that, uh, before the meeting started that to this day, now over a year later, I try several as much as I can during the week to go to those meetings, help set up, shake hands. Because they become a measure of my recovery. I, was, uh, I find that those days when I'm setting up chairs and I'm you know, angry that there's people out in their cars not coming to help, I know I'm in a bad place. And I call my sponsor and I say, something isn't right here. Help me work it out. Uh, and I do. But those days when I'm setting up the chairs and I think, you know, I'm helping somebody here get through, you know, the day and have a little recovery, then I know my day's going to be fine. And every day that I remain abstinent is so much better than any other day when I wasn't. Uh, and so I think that is it, and thanks for letting me share. Questions? Yes. Well, it, it brings up kind of another story. I've meditated in some way or another uh, since I was about 15. You know, I was always looking for a cure. Uh, I was one of those people that got into transcendental meditation, you know, when it was really cool. And uh, I meditated like that for a long time. Uh, Another incident kind of happened about eight years ago where I thought I really needed to get this meditation thing right. And it's sort of interesting how these things sort of happen when they do. I meditated with, uh, is it okay to talk about groups that I did? Okay. Uh, I meditated, well, I won't say the, the denomination, but I found a meditation group that was sort of Buddhist in the, in the city. And I sat in meditation with them for uh, uh, almost a year. But in the meantime... An interesting thing happened. I had traveled to uh, Thailand a few times, and, and I loved going to Buddhist monasteries. I was always fascinated by that. And I used to pick up these little pamphlets. The only English pamphlets you could get at one of these Thai monasteries was written by this fellow named Tanasura Bhikkhu. 
And so I thought he was just some Thai person that had been in the U.S. and learned English. It turned out that he was an American that had gone there and then went on to translate the stuff. And uh, not only that, but he, he's an abbot of a monastery down near San Diego. And so at some point I went and... and uh, studied from him. He uses what's called a Thai forest. Uh, they, they follow the Thai forest tradition. It's a mendicant tradition. Meditation is one of the very, the most important part of that program. And so uh, I practice with that and I meditate uh, twice a day uh, <coughs> for an ungodly amount of time. And I have a cat who meditates with me. So that's <laughs> amazing, amazing. I don't know what's the deal with the cat, but she likes to meditate too. <laughs> yes. How do you work your program um, with people out in the world that aren't in the program? I what never tell them. No. No, no, like you have to eat with them socially or if you date or you know, work. It's actually a really good question because one of the funny things that happened to me as I lost weight uh, in the program was all my friends came up to me and asked if I had cancer. <laughs> I, in that, but, you know, and I'm laughing about it because it was kind of funny. They'd be, you know, because when they hadn't seen me and then all of a sudden I've lost the weight, chatter, 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 and then they'd lean in and go, you don't have uh, cancer, do you? You know, and uh, and I, you know, would say no. Uh, I'm one of those people that has never taken compliments well. And my sponsor and some other people in the program, when people say, "Hey, you've lost a lot of weight," you know, I just say, "That's very kind, thank you," and I move on. Uh, I was visiting some friends out of town a few weekends ago, and they were marveling at that. And uh, we were eating at a Mexican restaurant, restaurant where, of course, there's, you know, just so many things that are inappropriate for a compulsive overeater there. <laughs> Chips and salt, you know, everything is just not right there. And as they saw me not eating any of those not right foods, they were, you know, chiding me a little bit and saying, what's wrong? What's going on? And I just told them, hey, I lost a significant amount of weight and I don't want to go back there. You know, and again, and then just move on. So uh, just try to deal with it quickly and then just move on. Um, when I think it's important to, to someone, I, I'm not ashamed of this program at, at, in the least. Uh, I have a, a friend of mine. I actually had two friends who are severely overweight. And one friend actually pointed me towards the food plan that I follow today to, you know, to, to get my health back. And I followed it and I lost uh, about 65 pounds. I set aside 65 pounds from my top weight. And he didn't lose a pound, and he doesn't call me anymore. I mean, literally, he just cut me out. One day, uh, you know, he, he stopped returning my calls, and I think, he, you know, so he knew I was in program, uh, but it didn't seem to make, you know, a matter. Now, I have another friend who has uh, even another serious eating problem, and he doesn't know I'm in a 12-step program because I know he couldn't deal with it, and he's not ready. You know, we know in this program, sadly, I can't do anything to get you, you know, uh, uh, abstinent. I can be there. I can, you know, provide support. I can be the person you call, but I, I simply can't be there, and I can't be there every time you pick up a, a fork, you know. Uh, and so, uh, when it's when it's worthwhile, I always share it. But when I think it might be awkward, and this this other friend would probably cut me off if he knew I was, <laughs> because it would put the mirror really boldly on him, you know. Yeah. Any more? Thank you.